Hello and welcome to Back to Work Connect, the podcast. I'm Gina Oglesby, CEO of Back to Work Connect, an education and employment career hub designed to get returners and career changers back to work. In each episode, we will discuss topics that are important to you, including financial well-being, mental health, and the supports available to help you get back to work. In this episode, we are joined by Nita Berka, CEO and founder of Sproutmans, to discuss cash flows. Martin Eve, uh, welcome again. So today we're looking at cash flow efficiencies. So where can we save money? Well, Gina, there are loads of places to save money. Today, I want to kind of focus in on our financial accounts, because this is something whereby we have a tendency to stick our head in the sand. You know, if we're worried about our cash flow on a month by month basis, we avoid it. But by facing it head on and finding those efficiencies, you actually feel very empowered and in control and in a much better place with your finances and obviously then your your wallet on a monthly basis. So one of the biggest outgoings people have, it tends to be their mortgage if they're lucky enough to, to own their own home and have a mortgage. Uh, with interest rates rising so much, you know, is there any way we can make savings there? Yes, there is indeed. Now, everybody's different as to what mortgage arrangement they have in place. But as you said, like your mortgage is going to be the biggest or one of the biggest outgoings that you'll ever have. So on a monthly basis, you know, that's coming out of your account. Could be north of a thousand, could be north of three thousand. Like it depends on your individual situation. And, you know, when we buy the house, we're all excited. We got the house and we go for the mortgage that we can get and credit approval can be difficult. And again, we kind of, we tick the box. We got the mortgage, we've drawn it down. We can feel the pain of it going out every month. And we've heard of people doing things like switchers. Essentially, different banks offer different interest rates. And some banks, they have different variable rates. So say you drew down your mortgage and you went for two-year fixed and then you revert it to a variable mortgage. This is what normally happens. And the variable mortgage is dependent on the underlying cost of funds. So even though a variable mortgage might not necessarily be a tracker mortgage, the interest rates in the European area still impact on the cost of borrowings to the banks and there is that knock-on effect. So there's many people out there sitting on variable interest rates, which can be expensive. And variable rates are great if you're paying off extra amount off your mortgage on a regular basis. But if you're not and you're just paying month by month, there's a couple of options there available to you. First of all, with your own bank, see what other interest rates your own bank offers. This is the easiest most cost-efficient way of saving money. So say if your bank, your mortgage was with, we'll just pick permanent TSB. And I don't know anything about their rates or I'm not affiliated to them. But just say you are on a variable rate with permanent TSB and your rate is 4% and you go online and you see a three-year fixed mortgage in there at 3%, right? That's a 1% saving. You could be saving on your mortgage. All you need to do is contact them and say, I would like to go onto the fixed rate. There's no legals. There's no having to seek new credit approval. It's really straightforward. It can be done in the day. Now, they may have a form or they may take your, they'll take a signed instruction from you and they'll tell you how to do that. And their website will tell you how to do it. But it's so simple. Now, the only reason why you wouldn't fix is if you do intend on moving in that period or if you do intend on paying off a big chunk. Because then if you break a fixed mortgage rate, there are penalties. So that's the first, really easy. We don't realize how accessible this is. 
And when you actually make that decision, people see it straight away in their in their bank accounts, you know, that they see those savings. Now, another option would be you might have, we'll use a different bank for no particular reason. We'll say AIB might be offering some fantastic rate and it's 2%. Now, there are no 2% rates at the moment, but just say it's 2% and you're on 4%. Depending on the size of your mortgage, it might actually work out better value for you to switch to AIB. Now, if you do go that route, you do have to go through full legals with AIB and you have to pay for a solicitor and you have to get credit approval again. So in theory, it could sound great, but you really need to weigh up the cost differential. It does, and I've seen it happen many, many times where people save considerable amounts by switching to a new institution or they might get cash back. But it is, it's not as stressful as moving house because you're not moving house as well in the mix, but there's still the legals and the credit assessment and you need to give everything to the bank. So that, that's definitely where I'd start. I always look at the, you know, these cashback offers and I always think to myself, can that actually be real? Like, surely you're getting cashback, but they're just adding it on to the end of your mortgage. Um, so is there, you know, special deals that you should be wary of or, you know, are they what they say on the tin? But it's actually really interesting. I did. Um, I love looking into the nitty gritty of these things. I did an analysis before on these cashback offers. So. One institution, I'm not going to say who they are, were offering a great cashback offer. I think it was like 2% upfront and then another 1% after year four or five or something like that. But their variable rate was the highest in the market. So what the banks are banking on, pardon the pun, is that Neve takes her mortgage and, and avails of the cashback offer. And then when I come off my fixed rate or whatever rate I'm on, I revert to the variable rate and I do nothing further. And that's where they make their money. They only make their money when you go on to the variable rate and you stay, right? They don't make it in that first period. So uh, running an analysis now, it's not an absolute, this is guaranteed for everyone. Nothing in life is guaranteed. But on the whole, those cashback offers can work out very well if you go for a, a market competitive fixed interest rate, you get your cash back and then you are prepared to switch after four or five years. So you'll search the market and you don't know where rates will be in four to five years. But if you're willing to potentially switch again or just stay on the stay on the ball with your interest rates, that's what that's where you really win out. But then it goes back to the whole point that switching does bring costs and does bring you know, issues with it. And you mightn't get credit approval with somebody else at that time. Who knows where you're going to be in five years? So there is that uncertainty. So they can work out very well, definitely, um, and are definitely worth considering. But the bank is, 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 is banking on you going in and staying. Is it true that fixed rates are generally more expensive than variable rates? And that's why, you know, there's some guarantee that this is how much I'm going to pay for the next couple of years. Um, what's the minimum you should fix for if you're going to go down that road? And what's too long to fix for, given the you know the fluctua fluctuations in the market at the moment? Um, you know, obviously we're on an increasing trajectory right now, but like, what's too long to fix for on a mortgage? This it's very unique. You know, you so you could be you could be thirty and buying your first place and seeing it as your first place. We don't know the future, but. You know, say if you buy a forever home, you've got a much longer time horizon that you can fix for. One really clever thing to do is a split mortgage. 
So a split mortgage allows you to say you're borrowing 200,000 and you put 100,000 on, say, fixed for three years and 100,000 fixed for five years. So what you're doing there is you're hedging your bets. The rates will be slightly different. They tend to be more expensive as you as you lengthen the fixed period. But if you're going to be living in a house for five years, you know, you're definitely going to be there for five years. Now, we never know anything definitely, but most likely to be there for five years. You might consider doing that because we don't know where interest rates will be in three years. They might have totally come back. There was a great opportunity to fix at very low rates uh, about 12 months ago. And it would have been something that I would have been encouraging people to do. But you you have to think of your lifestyle as well. What what are your plans? Where are you going? How long are you going to be here? But yes, split mortgages are are definitely something that I would have always promoted. And as a result, my clients would have, I don't do mortgages now, but as a lender, my clients would have always benefited. So if they had part of it on variable, they said they wanted to pay off another 50,000 over five years. There's no point in fixing that. So they they had their variable that they were chipping away at, and then they had their security and their fixed rate. And you can split it whatever way you want, 2080, whatever way you want. But it's definitely if you're if you're in the market for a new mortgage, do that. Yeah, I've never heard of the split mortgages. That's a that's a really interesting, really interesting one. And just finally on mortgages, um, if you were in a position to pay extra towards your monthly uh, payments or to pay off a lump sum, is that advisable or are you better off putting what you can into a savings account or, you know, what's the best approach if you had a few quid? As a financial advisor, we say the first thing you should do is make sure you have an emergency fund because things do go wrong and you need to have that slush fund that you can pay for bills or whatever it is. So they say three to six months. So you should do that first and you should make sure that you have sufficient life cover in place would be another thing to do first. But, you know, if you are in a very fortunate position whereby you have accumulated savings, you have your life cover in place, you have no personal debt, so you pay off the most expensive debt first. And if you've cleared any personal debt, obviously no credit, you know, no outstanding credit card debt, then, you know, yeah, chip away at the mortgage. Because if you pay off an extra hundred euros a month, you're not paying it off today, you're paying it off the back end. So what you're doing there is you are, like it may be a 3% interest rate, but it's 3% over 30 years, if you know what I mean. So it's the long term that makes that cost. So you're paying off 100 euros extra a month now. You're chipping away. You're taking time off the end. Your your mortgage will be repaid earlier. And, and it's being repaid earlier because there's a savings and interest. So if you're in that very fortunate position, the idea of owning your own home outright is definitely something that you should consider. But it's about balancing. You know, it's about balancing then. You don't want to get to retirement and have no pension assets um, and then but own your own home outright. So it's all about a balance. Yeah. So that sort of brings me on to other types of personal debt. As you said, get rid of the most expensive debt. Um, I've often spoken to people and it's like, well, I just borrowed out of the credit union rather than spending it out of my savings. You know, is that a good approach to take or are you better off having no personal debt and trying to save? Where you can, it's better not to take out debt. So like if if I took out a thousand euros loan and I paid 10% interest, which would be a standard enough personal in uh, lending rate, you nearly have to double that 10% to make it back on savings. Does that make sense? So it, it it's, you nearly have to get say about 16% return on, on your savings to make up for the, for the cost of the money. However, 
you know, you're going along and your car breaks down and you need a car to fix it and you don't have the cash flow. You know, you shouldn't really eat into your emergency fund because you need your emergency fund. Now, this kind of is an emergency, but, you know, you might need to take out a loan there. But then what you should think about is, is how you, if you do have that extra cash flow on a monthly basis, chip away at that first, clear that. And then say that 1,000 euros was costing you 50 euros a month and you were adding another 50 euros a month onto it. When you've that cleared, that's 100 euros a month that you can put then towards something else. If you have a couple of personal loans, write them down, work out which one has the, the highest interest rate and, and pay it off first. Now, just in relation to credit cards as well, which would come into the personal debt, you should try and clear off the full outstanding balance of your credit card if you can on a monthly basis. So like credit card interest rates are between 16 and 20%. It's really significant. This is the type of debt that can really get out of control. And I've seen people in a position where they're paying off two, 300 quid a month off their credit card and all they're doing is paying off the interest. So if you are in a position, if you have bad credit card debt, what you should think about doing is taking out, if you get credit approval, take out a personal loan at a lower debt with a structured repayment so that you can afford to repay, clear the credit card debt, cut up the card. If you're someone who's that way inclined, cut up that card and have structure then around repaying the debt. But that's, I mean, when we talk about cash flow efficiencies, paying a bank 10% up to 20%, that's what you want to get rid of. Yeah, absolutely. I do you remember years ago when the banks would actually send you credit cards with pre-approved, you know, 50 grand on it. I was like, there you go. Didn't even ask for one, but I'm giving you it anyway. Um, so really credit cards are sort of the, I mean, taking out cash on credit cards is something that you would not um, promote. Um, and paying off your credit card bill as quickly as possible, I think, is the is what you're saying. Is that right? Yeah, well, by the by the by the end date, by the due date. So, say you had a thousand euro credit card and um, a credit balance on your credit card, and it was the first you had to pay it off by the first of the month. Make sure the outstanding balance. So you could have paid like spent five hundred euros in, we'll say November, and the credit card bill comes through, and you have up until the first of January to clear that five hundred euros. Just make sure that's cleared, so you don't have to pay. The full balance, you have to pay what's owed on it. But if you if you don't pay the full balance of what's owed on it, you pay interest on the entire amount. So you could have spent 500 euros, paid 400 euros off, but because you didn't pay off the ho- whole amount, the interest accrues on the whole amount. Now, different people behave differently with credit cards. So credit cards can be very useful for um, transaction charges. So banks nowadays will charge per transaction. A lot of them will, not all of them, but some of them will, you know, 20 cents every time you use your debit card and nobody carries cash anymore. So we're all using cards, but you don't get individual card transaction fees on a credit card. So it can be, if you are good at controlling your spending, it can be a way of minimizing bank charges. Yeah, that's actually really good because I, I was looking at my bank statement the other day and I, you don't realize how many times you tap your credit, your laser, your debit card in the shop. Like it's just dozens of times a day can be. So, yeah, that's a that's a good tip now that your credit card doesn't charge you per, um, per transaction. 
Um, you know, years ago, or maybe they, they don't do it anymore, but just the last thing on credit cards, um, you'd have a you know switch at 0%. So if you had a big credit card bill and then you changed to a different company, do they still do that? As far as I know, now I haven't looked into it in a while, but yeah, so pe- what people would do is if they had a large outstanding balance, they'd switch to a new institution and get 0% interest for six months. Now, the thing is, if you were doing that, one, you have to get credit approval again. So it's it's very different to, as you said, we used to get letters in the post and say, congratulations, you've been pre-approved for another 50 grand on your on your credit card. Uh, that's gone. It's full credit approval that, and you know, the bank will assess your spending and your inflows and your outflows and all that kind of stuff. But really, if you're switching with the view to saving interest for a period, you know, there's a bigger, there's a bigger issue at play here. You need to be getting down your limits. You need to be getting to a place that you can clear it on a monthly basis. If you're going to keep a credit card, it's it's not ideal. It's a way to help. But I mean, you, you'd, you'd need to be putting a good, solid strategy in place if you were going to implement something like that. Whereas a personal loan, you know, if you had 10 grand of credit card limit and you were approved, assuming approval for a personal loan, say 10 grand was outstanding on the uh, credit card and you were just paying interest every month of 500 euros. Instead of doing that, if you you could structure it onto a personal loan and by paying that 500 euros a month off that personal loan, it would clear that you could you're actually eating into the capital. Whereas when it's on the credit card, all you're doing is chipping away at interest. So, look, we're talking about, you know, our our financial accounts. So like a what would be your advice on people and how often should they do an audit on their bank account? Um, I know sometimes you, you see charges and you go, geez, what's that? And I must look it up. And then, you know, you forget it until, you know, six months later when you're looking at it again. What's the, you know, when should people or how often should people do an audit on their current account at least? I would recommend people do an audit of their account at least once a month. I know it probably gives some of us the fear and we go, oh God, how much did I spend there? Or what did I do there? But there's a few reasons. Firstly, you know, you should be keeping an eye on your transactions because fraudulent transactions do happen, right? And the quicker they're caught, the quicker that is stopped, the quicker you can be refunded by the bank and start that whole process of seeking a refund in relation to it. But that, so that, that would be one reason, you know, keep an eye, make sure there's no fraudulent transactions on your account. Then I would also run an audit to make sure that all the outgoings in your account make sense, all the standing orders make sense. So that's another reason to check your accounts, but then also to have a look and, and to get an understanding as to what are you spending your money on? Where is it going? It's important that we are aware of our own spending habits, kind of like a self-reflection. And I, you know, I would see a lot of maybe the budget, budgeters, they would have a look at subscriptions and they'd say, well, I signed up for Amazon Prime and I never use Amazon Prime and I'm paying X amount per month. You know, that could be 10, 15, I don't know how much Amazon Prime is because I signed up once and then realized I didn't use it, that I'm not getting value for. But there are other things like insurance. So insurance is a very, very important part of our total financial well-being. And we might have travel insurance if we're going traveling, car insurance, we have to have it. You know, there's some insurances that we absolutely have to have or we can't function. So you can't go drive your car without having car insurance. But there are other insurances such as life insurance that you, you would have taken out. So there would be mortgage protection if you have a mortgage. There might be, you might have serious illness cover. You might have income protection. You might have health insurance. So all these 
outside of the mortgage protection, all of these are optional insurances that you should choose to take on. And my first comment would be, do not cancel these. Do not make a flip decision and say, I'm really tight for cash this month. I'm going to cancel this. Because it's when you cancel it, you need it most. Like, you know, I know a story of a gentleman who had income protection for years. And he was like, I'm not using this. I don't need this. He canceled it. And two months later, he was diagnosed with terminal cancer. When you took it out, you took a very clever decision to take out that cover. And it's always cheaper if you've taken it out when you're younger. Now, at the same time, it's well worth doing an audit. So I've worked with a number of clients recently, Gina, and I've done audits of their total life assurance and their income protection and their serious illness. And what I found is as we get older, there's less of a need to protect ourselves. So in the ideal world, as we get older, our net worth goes up, our mortgage goes down, our assets go up in value, our dependents grow up, they're less dependent on us. So the amount of life cover we need is is less than what it was when we took it out. And, you know, along the way, we might have picked up extra life cover. So I've run a number of life cover audits for people recently, and it's really interesting. So you know, there's been a few people where I've said, you, you're doubly insured. You don't need all this life cover. And they've saved like 300 euros a month. So I suppose, you know, we talked about doing a bank account audit, but also a life cover audit. So you do want, if you're that way inclined, if you're prudently inclined and have life cover in place, don't cancel it. Do an audit of it. Work out what exactly you need and what's viable to keep and what makes sense to keep. So there's there's a balance. Going back then to the car insurance, another way to save money is if you take out your car insurance and pay it monthly, it costs you in the region of 10% more a year. So if you are in a position to pay things annually, you save money. Like your car tax, you save money if you buy it annually. But in order to save money, what you need to do is nearly build up a, a little savings pot for it. So in advance, so just say your car insurance is... You've just renewed your car insurance for 2023 and you're paying monthly because cash flow might be tight. Be thinking about 2024 and say, okay, well, my car insurance has cost me 30 euros a month. If I could put 20 euros a month aside into wherever I'm putting it, earmark it for car insurance, put it aside so that come next January, you actually have that saved up and you can buy it for the full year in one go and save 10%. And it compounds, those behaviors and savings compound, you know, 10 euros here, 10 euros there. You might then say, I'm going to take that 10 euros that I've saved on my car insurance, and I'm going to put it off my credit card debt or my personal debt, because you're going from the most expensive down, or I'm going to start chipping away at my mortgage. I didn't have the money to start with. I've saved that money now. So I'm going to put that towards my mortgage. And all of a sudden, you're taking the savings that you it's costing you no extra money, you're just planning ahead, but you've saved on your car insurance and you're now saving interest on your mortgage and reducing its term. Yeah, I, I like that idea that, you know, I mean, we've often had insurance policies um, all over the place um, and particularly car insurance and house insurance. I mean, it cracks me up when, you know, you, you've been with the same company for years and they're charging you like huge money. But then if you change somewhere else, you get like a fraction of the cost. So changing your insurance policy or at least looking for a better deal every year is definitely one of the top tips, would you say? Oh, without a doubt. And, you know, on all insurances, you're right. You know, the, and I think the government did push back. I know that, you know, staying with the same supplier was 
costing people money you know they weren't getting the beneficial rates that it was to to capture a new client and you know it goes back to kind of the thought process behind the cashback offers on the mortgage they've got you so they think you're just going to stay so they're not going to work to try and keep you every year car insurance health insurance as well health insurance changes all the time you know years ago we had vhi that was our only option and you probably had packages a b c and d whereas now there are thousands of of different options from no, numerous different companies so like i would say you know in the last 10 years i have pretty much changed my health insurance every year and i am paying no more than i did at the outset but i'm actually getting better benefits so again shop around there every year when things are up for renewal super Thanks, Neve. Um, God, there's just so much to take in, but I think the top tips from today are shop around, do an audit of your expenses, your audit your bank account every every month uh, and see where you are. Um, and then, yeah, absolutely shop around and see where you're going. Thank you for listening to the Back to Work Connect podcast. I'm Gina Oglesby, and today we were with Neve DeBurka of Sprout Plans. Thank you to our sponsors, Bank of Ireland, the Begin Together Fund and the Community Foundation of Ireland. 